Asia Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. All groups of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents on this Saturday, the 10th of October. Of course, we're recording it on Friday, the 9th of October. I'm Giselle Hanna. And I'm Pierre Morrow, and it's great to be with you once once again. And, of course, you're listening to Asia Pacific Currents, brought to you every week on your favourite community radio station by Australia Asia Worker Links. And, Giselle, those contact details. That's right. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on the web, all the w's.aawl.org.au. We're on Facebook and Twitter, so look us up on those social media platforms and we continue to post news and current affairs from the Asia-Pacific region, but very specifically from a union and labour movement perspective. And coming up in the second part of the show, Pierre, you're going to speak with James Barry, who is an academic, and we don't often speak to academics, but because we want to look at the situation in in Armenia and Azerbaijan and actually uh, examine this conflict and try to understand what is happening, um, we're going to speak with a left-wing progressive um, academic, and that will be James Barry in the second part of the program. I look forward uh, to it. And um, we'll go to the uh, news uh, from the region for this week. And I might as well start off, um, Giselle, with the first story. And we go to Indonesia, to nearby Australia, where the um, Labor reform bill has been met by strikes and demonstration all week. Uh, Indonesia this week saw three days of strikes and demonstrations throughout the country as unions and labour organisations came out against the passing of a new labour law on Monday. The government um, said that the bill is meant to streamline and equalise regulations and standards across Indonesia to favour jobs and economic growth. What the bill actually does is it abolishes the sectoral minimum wage in favour of minimums set by regional governors, reduce severance pay, increase allowable overtime to four hours per day and 18 hours a week, um, ease restrictions on outsourcing, and employees will only be required to give workers one day off a week instead of the current two days. So that's going to be the legal minimum. And of course, a lot of employers go below that. The government uh, tried to use COVID-19 restrictions as a way to stifle and contain these protests. Reports suggest that many hundreds of workers have been arrested by the police over the last three days. And moving now to India, where murder and rape has sparked mass protests once again. Of course, we know that this was the case about um, seven or eight years ago, I think it was, Pierre. But last week, a 19-year-old Dalit woman was gang-raped and subsequently died from her injuries by a group of four upper-caste men in the northern Indian state of Uttar Pradesh. This crime once again shone the spotlight on the rampant sexual violence faced by India's 80 million Dalit women. 
These women, who comprise about 16% of India's female population, face a triple burden of gender bias, caste discrimination and economic deprivation. While mass protests erupted across northern India against the continued levels of violence against women, the actions of the police and public officials in this case also highlighted the deep structural inequalities and power imbalances in Indian society. Nevertheless, the Dalits are progressively becoming more organised and fighting back against their historical, political and economic oppression. And um, great to see. And we go to another site where there's been a lot of resistance um, to Iraq, uh, where in all the major cities of central and southern Iraq, tens of thousands of demonstrators took to the streets on the 1st of October last week to mark the first anniversary of the mass protests that started last year. As we have reported previously, these protests have called for an end to corruption, sectarianism, violence, inequality and exploitation. The activists involved have had to pay a high price for their actions over the last year, with over 560 people killed from police and military repressions of the demonstrations, with an additional 65 activists murdered in targeted attacks by escorts. No person or group has been charged over any of these deaths so far. And women workers in Bangladesh have won back their jobs. During the months of May and June, workers at the Adams Apparel Garment Factory underwent medical assessments. The managers found out that a dozen of these women workers were pregnant and progressively terminated their employment one by one. The Bangladesh Garment Textile Leather Workers Federation took up the case of these women and demanded that they be reinstated. After protracted negotiations, the company signed an agreement that not only included reemployment, excuse me, that not only included reemploying the women workers, but also to pay them compensation for the time they were without a job. An absolute a massive victory for those garment workers. We know that um, the way that garment workers in Bangladesh and other um, parts of the Asia Pacific are repressed is through sexual violence. It's a very, not only gendered, but sexualized in terms of the repressive behavior industry and workforce. And then, you know, pregnant women right across the world, even in very developed capitalist countries, experience this kind of discrimination. So the fact that they fought back and won and and won overwhelmingly is such a such a victory. I'm very, very happy about it, Pierre. Uh, well, fantastic. I'm, gl- I'm glad. Well, I'm glad for those workers. I'm glad that you're happy. And I'm also glad that uh, we can actually bring a, a good news stories because unfortunately, a lot of our updates are often uh, very, um, very, very harsh. But yes, that, that was a great victory and well done to them. Uh, We now go to Iran, where Iranian sugar workers are still holding out. Um, We brought you uh, this um, story beforehand as well. The thousands of sugarcane workers at the Half Tupper factory that have been on strike for about three months are standing firm in the fight against corruption at their factory. 
In a statement released this week, the workers stated there are only two acceptable options for them in terms of ownership of the company. The company is either transferred totally to the Haftape workers, or if the company is returned to the state, then it must be run under the supervision of the Haftape Workers' Council. In other labour news, there have been demonstrations by nurses, teachers, public servants and energy workers protesting against the non-payment of wages. The economic situation in Iran has deteriorated to such an extent that there are now shortages of some staple foods as well as gas and petroleum. So obviously a situation to uh, uh, keep um, uh, checking over the next few weeks there in Iran. And we now move to uh, one of the most contemporary independence movements, uh, New Caledonia or Kanaki, whatever you want to call, but there was a vote um, uh, this week in, in that part of the world. And, of course, those people voted to remain a part of France. So this week a referendum on independence was held in the Southern Pacific French territory of what for now we're going to call New Caledonia. The pro-French vote won a narrow majority with 53% voting to remain a protectorate of France, while 47% voted for independence. This was a second independence referendum with the first one in 2018, returning a higher pro-French vote, 57 versus 43 these referendums are a result of the Numia Accord signed between French and local leaders in 1998 that followed the peace deal that ended decades of conflict between the indigenous Kanak people and the descendants of European settlers known as the Kaldoshis. The two communities are each uh, comprised of around 35% of 40% of the population, with the rest being of either mixed heritage or from other countries. Given the closeness of the result, it's highly likely that a third independence referendum will be held in the next two years, as stipulated by the Numia Accords. And of course, we don't want to um, impose a political view on the Indigenous people of Kanaki, but um, I, I imagine that there will be a lot of campaigning and a lot of work in the ensuing two years to really uh, create a space for a genuine, authentic um, expression of free will in those upcoming um, or that upcoming independence referendum. That's that's right. And just also to say there are, are quite clear economic divides in that country as, as, as well. So um, I think in two years' time, it's going to be very, very interesting because I think the vote's going to be uh, incredibly close. Well, we're going to go to some community announcements and then we'll, be, um, we'll go into our feature story with James Barry. An important message from the Victorian Government about coronavirus. To manage coronavirus and save lives, immediate action is required. This means if you can stay home, you must stay home. Yes, it's a major disruption to your lives, but this disruption today will save the lives of many Victorians tomorrow. If you think you may have coronavirus, call the government's hotline on 1800 675 398 or visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Victorian Government, managing this together. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM. 
This is Asia Pacific Currents with Pierre and Giselle. And we're going to be speaking now to James Barry, who's an academic at Deakin University at the Alfred Deakin Institute. Um, And we're going to be talking about the current conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Welcome, James. Thank you. Good morning, James, and it's uh, great to have you on on this um, important topic, but uh, possibly one that many people uh, don't know much about, the whole Nagorno-Karabakh issue. So just for uh, our listeners, to start off, can you give us a brief history of how this conflict has its roots in the Soviet Union and its breakup in the early 1990s? Well, uh the area has always been very multi-ethnic, and that's reflected in the name Nagorno-Karabakh, which is a mixture of Persian, Russian, and Turkish, and also the Armenian name Artsakh, which is an old name for the area. Essentially, there's always been many different religious and ethnic groups living in, in the South Caucasus. Uh, the problem came when, uh, towards the end of the Russian Empire uh, and the beginning of the Soviet period, when there was an effort to draw borders or make uh, administrative borders match ethnic lines. Um, over the 20th century, this led to a lot of competition between Armenians and Azerbaijanis um, for a number of reasons, which I won't have time to go into. But uh, essentially, there was a lot of economic competition between the two groups before and after the revolution. Um, now, the region of Karabakh was interesting. It was an autonomous region within the Soviet Union uh, with an Armenian majority within the Soviet Socialist Republic of Azerbaijan. The reason why it was put in Azerbaijan and not in the Soviet Socialist Republic of Armenia was because at the time when the Bolsheviks arrived there, it was in the hands of the Social Democrats of Azerbaijan, not in the hands of the Armenians. Um, Now, Karabakh is also unique amongst the Soviet autonomous regions for not being an ethnically defined autonomous region. It was defined by geography. Uh, Same with Nakhichevan, which is also in Azerbaijan. Um, Now, the Armenians of Karabakh had always been trying to either have more representation within the Azerbaijan Soviet Socialist Republic or to reunify, or to unify, sorry, with the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic. This came to a head in the late 80s when they voted, the autonomous government voted to join uh, the uh, Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic, which Azerbaijan rejected, uh, which led to violence against Armenians in uh, Azerbaijan's uh, cities of Baku and Sumgait, and then retaliatory violence of Azerbaijanis in Armenia. Um, Once the two countries became independent from the Soviet Union, Karabakh decided rather than joining either of them, they would just declare independence, uh, become an independent country, a de facto republic. And uh, no, no country, including Armenia, recognised this, but Armenia technically recognises it. But this led to a war uh, between Azerbaijan and Karabakh, which later brought in Armenia. Armenia won that war uh, and they ended up occupying not only Karabakh, but also uh, <clears throat> a series of land around it, meaning about 20% of Azerbaijan's territory. Well, thanks um, for that, um, James. And uh, just as a side issue, um, I was actually fortunate enough to go to Georgia, which is a a neighbouring country just last year, and uh, really got to know that even in in that country, there's actually some uh, other minorities there and and the history of of it is incredible. So I can can understand that those uh, intersecting histories and um and so the the dispute has really been uh, simmering since the early 1990s when you said the the that 
conflict um, finish. And there's actually been uh, attempts, and I think there's been a crisis group that has been uh, formed since then. But um, obviously, it's been quite intractable. What are the main issues that have made this so issue so intractable for the last um, 25 years? Well, the core issue between Armenia and Azerbaijan is both countries, both peoples claim that as their homeland. So it's, um, that's intractable in one sense. Uh, the other problem for the international community is it's two internationally recognised states fighting each other. This is not like other Caucasian conflicts like Chechnya or South Ossetia or Abkhazia, where you have a breakaway region that's not internationally recognised fighting against an internationally recognised country. So really it's in the too hard basket for a lot of international of the international community to take a side. Um, added to that is Russia. Russia has tried to keep a balance between the two countries, mostly because it doesn't want NATO, European Union or American influence in the area. So what it does is sell weapons to both countries. Um, the idea being that if they don't sell weapons to either country, then they'll find a way to buy them from somewhere else. Um, that has complicated the issue. And at the heart of this is uh, the Armenians have wanted to status quo to stay the same because they want to keep that land, including not just Karabakh. They want, Karabakh is the main issue, but they want to keep the land around it as well. Uh, whereas Azerbaijan is completely unacceptable. Azerbaijan in the past had negotiated to try and get the land around Karabakh returned, but that was 20 years ago when the leadership of both countries was different. Yes, and um, and obviously it's been simmering since since then. And in the last couple of weeks, uh, it's gone from a just a simmering conflict to a, an escalation to full scale war. And a lot of people see that the the trigger was actually Turkey's um, involvement and strong backing of the Azerbaijani government. Do you think this is a um, correct analysis? It's one of the uh, one of the uh the elements that's been at play. Probably bigger issues have been COVID, the fact there are no tourists in Azerbaijan, so they're not going to sabotage their own economy. Um, the fact Russia has been preoccupied in Belarus and uh, a fear of uh, the EU and NATO having another, uh, another uh, uh, position on their border. Uh, so they've been a bit distracted there. But Azerbaijan has been playing a long game. They've been uh, they've had a, a booming economy for the past 20 years, though less so now, um, but they've been able to expand their diplomatic networks. They've been able to build an army. Their military budget is bigger than Armenia's entire budget. Uh, so they've been trying to play a long game. What they have done here, what Turkey has changed. So Turkey had a big, um, and Azerbaijan had a very good relationship up until the mid 90s when Azerbaijan distanced themselves from Turkey because it affected their relationships both with Russia and with Iran. Now, this is an interesting um, thing because this is the first time they've really jumped back on board with Turkey. Um, and what it means is that Azerbaijan is resetting their international relationships and telling Russia that we don't think that you are a good arbitrator anymore. We, we arbiter anymore. We are the um, we're, we're finding a, a new alliance that's to our advantage and will help us meet our goals. Thanks for that. And uh, interesting to hear some of the other uh, factors at play. But the, the region is also strategically important. It's the site of a major gas and oil pipeline. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, the issue of energy resources are, is also another factor of this of this war? 
I actually think that's the cause of the conflict between Armenian and Azerbaijanis to begin with, because the first violence between the two groups started in the, first, the beginning of the 20th century, and it was essentially between Armenian, sorry, Azerbaijani workers and Armenian uh, industrialists who ran the oil fields in Baku. Uh, now, of course, oil is a big part of oil and gas is very important to this conflict because it's made Azerbaijan wealthy, but it's also their weak point. And we saw in the last couple of days that um, the Armenians have been uh, trying to, to attack the oil pipeline on the grounds that it will bring it to international attention to the issue, but also it's infrastructure that can be easily repaired and it's not going to cause major loss of life and outrage in that sense. Um, so, yeah, oil and gas has always been central to this conflict. And um, and you've, all, you've already um, mentioned uh, Russia, but... Uh... They're only one of the two other major countries bordering the region, which, of course, is Iran as well. And both countries have been um, quite active, uh, whether in North Africa or in West Asia or in the Arabian Peninsula, in a variety of conflicts. But in this case, they both seem to have good relations and interests with both Azerbaijan and Armenia. How do you think um, it will play out for both Russia and Iran, this war? And um, what, what are they going to do? Russia, it's hard to predict what Russia will do because they, um, they're always very opaque. Iran wants to stay it out and wants a ceasefire. Now, that would suit uh, Armenia more than Azerbaijan, but they, that's what the way they would generally look at it. They don't want a large conflict. In fact, a few days ago, the president of Azerbaijan, Aliyev, called Rouhani, the president of Iran, and because he had, um, the, he, the Azerbaijan army had taken back some territory along the Iranian border, and he had called Rouhani to say, we want to reopen this border. Um, and Rouhani, had, his response was, we don't want this to become a regional conflict. So Iran's main goal is to make sure that it's contained and that it doesn't go any further. And, and, so, and you've got no idea what Russia may or may not do? Um, Russia has made their position clear that as long as Armenia is not attacked directly they're not going to be involved so russia said karabakh is not there, not in their um it's not in their interest so getting to the final questions and so bringing back you know we've started got with the history we've looked at uh, at what is is happening and given that this uh, issue has been going on since the 1990s um and the war has now this this current uh, um war has been going for two weeks how do you think this current round of military conflict win, will end? In other words, who do you think will gain the most? And what will then happen? Will, will there be more talks? Will the conflict just go to another 20 years of low-level uh, distrust or whatever? Like how, how do you see it? Um, de definitely Azerbaijan's strategy is to reset the status quo. So this war could go on for a long time, and it's, and it's definitely the largest uh, enga military engagement this country, those two countries have had since 1994. Um, Azerbaijan believes they can wait out a longer war. They have the resources to be able to do that. Armenia would be suing for a ceasefire as soon as, sorry, a ceasefire as soon as possible. Uh, now, what would end up happening is Azerbaijan would reclaim some territory that would boost the president, um, but also it would cause Armenia to rethink those occupied territories around Karabakh and to prioritise which areas they uh, red lines we absolutely have to keep these, and which those are those they can give back to Azerbaijan. I think that's where uh, it's going, and that's where Azerbaijan wants it to go. 
Um, but it's hard to tell um, at this stage because uh, everything's up in the uh, up in the air, and both sides would be wanting to make gains and keeping those gains. Maybe I have. I think we've got time for one quick additional question, James. Now we've talked about this as a war over territory, over resources, and political war. Now, unfortunately, that region also has had in the past major events of terrible ethnic cleansing type of events. Do you think there is a danger that if the war keeps going, it might not just be a military war, but it actually might descend into wholesale civilian massacres? Absolutely. And definitely that's what the Armenian side fears the most. They fear if their areas are taken, that the people, civilians living there will be massacred. Uh, and the president of, of Armenia, Pashinyan, made this very clear when he linked the country's war effort to two major events, the Armenian genocide. Uh, he said this is, again, 1915 um, with the Ottomans. And he said this is our Sardarabat. Sardarabat was, uh, is a town in Armenia where um, just, after the end of the, uh, just after the October Revolution, where the Armenians fought off the Ottomans and prevented them from going further east than they had been and kept them at the um, at that border. So for the Armenians, that is a real and present danger. Azerbaijan, they do talk about genocide as being a fear of theirs and there has been ethnic cleansing, but nowhere near the, the, the level of whole scale killing that Armenians have experienced over the past two centuries. And uh, often Azerbaijan, while they're talking about actual massacres that Armenians have committed, it's usually to counteract the Armenian genocide narrative. But for Armenians, it is a real and present fear. All right. Well, thanks for that, um, James. And uh, we'll certainly uh, hope that um, a peace negotiation uh, progress quickly and this uh, conflict um, can actually be um, stopped as soon as possible. But you've given us a very good insight in some of the history and some of the complications of it. So uh, thank you again, um, James, for coming on board and uh, giving us uh, this uh, explanation and about the conflict in uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh. Thank you very much. And that was James Barry from Deakin University talking about the conflict in the Caucasus at the moment. We're going to go to some community announcements and then Pierre will come back to wrap up the show. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. 
You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. And you are listening to Community Radio 3CR. This is Asia Pacific Currents. Pierre, I think that's all from us today. That's correct. Another successful uh, radio program of Asia Pacific Currents brought to you every week by Australia Asia Worker Links on your favourite community radio station, 3CR Radio. We'll be back again next week. So it's goodbye from me, Pierre Morrow. And me, Giselle Hanna.